It's Friday, May 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Las Vegas has a date to reopen. On June 4th, selected casinos will be open for business. Temperatures will be checked, and employees will wear masks. Bars and restaurants will be open, but buffets will continue to be closed. On the gambling floor, there will be increased cleaning and less people at each table. Bailey Schultz, reporter at the Las Vegas Review-Journal, joins us for the plans to reopen Vegas. Next, President Trump has signed an executive order that could open the door for federal regulators to punish Facebook, Google, and Twitter for the way they moderate content online. This order comes after Twitter decided to fact-check some posts by the president about mail-in voting. The order could pave the way for a revision of a long-standing legal protection known as Section 230. Kat Zakreski, author of the Technology 202 newsletter at the Washington Post, joins us for the fight against big tech companies. Finally, antibody tests and issues with their accuracy have led to more questions for many who felt they were ill before the first reported coronavirus case in January. After looking at their personal histories and antibody test results, some think that the coronavirus could have been circulating as early as November of last year. Dan Frosch, reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We're all in the boat where we're having financial difficulties, whatever, the list goes on and on. But, I mean, the main thing is to stay, stay safe. So in my opinion, yes, I'd like to see it go slow. We're all going to have fun eventually. You know, there's no rush. I'd rather be have fun, be safe, and not be sorry. Joining us now is Bailey Schultz, reporter for the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Thanks for joining us, Bailey. Yeah, happy to be here. Next week is a big day for Las Vegas. June 4th, there will be a lot of casinos that will finally be reopening after everything was shut down due to the coronavirus pandemic. It's a pretty big milestone for the city and the casino industry altogether. I know they were very hard hit in that area. Just the amount of money that it generates for the city, the amount of people that are employed by the casinos. And then beyond that, you know, just the entertainment value, people that love to get out there and spend their time in Las Vegas. Bailey, tell us a little bit more about what we know. Who's opening and how is it all going to happen? So, of course, not every property is going to be reopening. We're seeing a lot of companies planning for this phase approach. So few people traveling right now, it just doesn't make sense to open every property on the Strip. And so, for example, with MGM Resorts, we're seeing them open the Bellagio and New York and the MGM Grands Caesars. We're seeing the Caesars Palace and Flamingo, just sort of those slow reopenings as demand slowly starts to pick up. But across the board, we're seeing properties come back online and pretty much across the Las Vegas Valley where we have the strip properties opening, we have downtown properties opening. Here, they're able to open their doors at 12.01 a.m., so pretty much right after the clock strikes midnight. But we're seeing a range of when these properties will be opening exactly. Some are opening right at 12.01 when they can. Others are waiting until 8 a.m. or 10 a.m. So there's a pretty good range. Yeah, the Cosmopolitan is opening. Some Wynn resorts are opening the Wynn and Encore. It's not every casino like you mentioned, but there's enough and they're spread out enough. I mean, enough to generate a pretty good time, I would think, in Vegas. But yeah, you're right. I'd be curious to see who's waiting in line at 12.01 to get in there and and start going. That'll be something to look forward to on June 4th there. But let's talk about some of the important stuff. Obviously, safety and health is key in all of this. 
every business that's opening is talking about requiring face masks, a lot of extra cleaning, hand sanitizer. But Las Vegas and these casinos are so unique. What are they planning? How are they planning to keep people safe and clean? Our state gaming control board is actually enforcing all these different companies and licensed operators to submit these plans to them that just say, hey, here's what we're doing to keep our employees and guests safe. And while it's not required for them to to make these documents public, a lot of them are. I think just so that these guests and visitors can take a look at these websites and these guidelines that they post online and say, okay, here's what these companies are going to keep me safe. Here's what I can expect. So there's a little bit of variety between each company, but a lot of similarities across the board. Staffs being required to wear masks. We're seeing a lot say they're going to put in thermal cameras so they can screen temperatures as people are walking the door. And of course, with it being hot in the desert, if your external temperature is hot, they'll double check it and make sure you actually have a fever before they won't let you in. Other things we're seeing is hand sanitizers spread across the properties. Just a lot of steps to keep people safe and remind people that their safety is a priority for these companies. On the face masks front, I'm seeing that obviously a lot of the resorts are going to have their employees be wearing them. And some of the bigger resorts are going to give guests free masks, but they're not going to necessarily be forced to use them. Does that seem like that's kind of across the board where masks are recommended, but they're not going to enforce anything like that? That's what I've seen where nothing was being strictly enforced by these companies. There are some lines in these new health and safety plans that say, hey, if we can't enforce six feet of social distancing and we don't have barriers, we may require you to wear a mask in certain instances. But other than that, I have not seen anything saying we will require each guest to wear a mask as they walk in the property. The gaming floors are going to be pretty different too. At roulette tables, they're only going to allow four players, six players at Mm -hmm. a craps table. And I think even there's going to be plastic partitions to separate dealers from the players and other players. So that's going to be pretty different. The slot machines are always very close to each other. What's the plan on that? Are they closing maybe the slot machine in the middle and just letting people use the ones on the outside? How is that going to work out? Again, all about that social distancing. A lot of them are saying they're going to turn off or remove every other slot machine to make sure people have that space between them and the other players. Some are saying they're going to have that sort of plexiglass dividers between certain machines. And so we're seeing a big variety there. But I think with these companies, a lot of what they're thinking about right now is just making sure there's that distance between guests as they play in the casinos. Two other big interesting things that I noted, everybody's touting free self-parking, but it seems like valet is out the window. And the other one is a lot of restaurants and bars are opening, but it seems like a lot of the buffets are not going to be open. Self-parking is a very hotly debated topic here in Las Vegas where locals are very against it and have been against it since it first started being implemented here. But right now, it makes sense to remove, I think, at the beginning, especially these companies are going to be very reliant on local business and drive-in customers from places like California, and it makes sense to draw these people in by offering that free parking. And so not entirely a big surprise that they are changing that in light of current circumstances. As far as buffets, it seems like those will be gone until further notice, just for safety reasons, once again, to make sure that there's heightened cleanliness measures and and making sure people have safe food and free food when they get it. Bailey Schultz, reporter for the Las Vegas Review-Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me.
My executive order calls for new regulations under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act to make it that social media companies that engage in censoring or any political conduct will not be able to keep their liability shield. That's a big deal. Joining us now is Kat Zakreski, author of the Technology 202 newsletter for The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Kat. Thanks for having me on the show. President Trump has signed the executive order that could open the door for federal regulators to punish Facebook, Google, and Twitter for the way they police content online. This comes after Twitter had fact-checked a couple of the president's tweets concerning mail-in voting. Before President Trump signed the document, he said, we're here today to defend free speech from one of the greatest dangers. Kat, tell us a little bit about the executive order and then some of the broader implications that it might have. So the president for years has been threatening to crack down on the tech industry and pursue regulation. And today he took the most significant step toward that with this executive order. What the executive order does is take aim at the tech industry's legal shield, which is known as Section 230. And this decades-old law basically protects tech companies from lawsuits for the content moderation decisions they make, and also for any content that people post on their services. So this executive order today, according to the drafts that we saw circulating earlier, would essentially direct federal regulators to take a closer look at the scope of that law. And this is a law that many tech companies view as completely fundamental to the way that they operate. And so any changes to that are very concerning to the tech industry. Basically, a lot of the tech companies believe that this legal shield protected them from onerous lawsuits and allowed the tech industry to grow to what it is today. And they've raised concerns that any changes to this law or how it's enforced could have very negative impacts on free expression online. How does this fit into what happened on Twitter, where the president was tweeting stuff out about mail-in voting, said there's going to be a lot of fraud related to it, and Twitter put a fact check out there. They pointed to some other articles that basically says, you know, there's really no evidence of that. How would uh, this executive order figure into something like that? Because the president and a lot of people on the right have for a long time accused a lot of these social media platforms of bias against conservative voices. You know, the Trump administration and some other Republicans have argued that if the tech companies are going to be making decisions about how their remarks appear on their services, like the decision that Twitter made earlier this week to label two of the president's tweets, that they shouldn't have this broad immunity from liability. The president and Republicans argue that that makes them more like news organizations like the Washington Post or others. And they argue that if they're going to be making editorial decisions, that they should therefore be liable and be able to be sued for the content decisions they make and the content that they host. So really, you know, this is the president following through on longstanding threats to regulate the industry. This as I mentioned, is one of the tech industry's most important shield. And by taking aim at that, he's really kicking up this tensions that we've seen between Silicon Valley and the White House to a new level. And 
right now it remains to be seen how effective this will actually be in terms of changing how the law is implemented. This executive order in the form that we saw earlier today would direct federal regulators, specifically it would direct the Commerce Department to petition the FCC to open a review of this law. So it really at this point is up to the agencies on how they're going to enforce it. And also, I mean, this order opens a lot of thorny First Amendment questions, and I think we'll see some challenges moving forward from the tech companies over whether or not what the president is doing is constitutional. There's going to be a lot of pressure on all sides, supporters of the president, obviously the president himself, and then on the other side, calls for the social media platforms to continue doing some of this fact-checking stuff. One of the questions I had, because the president has been saying a lot of stuff on his Twitter during his tenure as president. Most recently, he's also been talking about some conspiracy thing with Joe Scarborough, accusing him, saying about possible murder or things like that. But when Twitter decided to fact check his Twitter feed this time about the mail-in voting, I think uh, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, said whenever something is being said incorrect about our elections, we're going to try to fact check that. Was that specifically why they did it to that, just because it kind of concerned the election and not some of these other claims, you know, Joe Scarborough stuff, all this other stuff? Each social network has really specific terms of service and community standards. And based on those policies, they often make decisions about whether or not to label or remove something. In Twitter's policies, particularly any information that could potentially suppress voting, any health disinformation related to the coronavirus, they view those topics as more sensitive than other general false claims on their services. So it kind of goes to show how these policies get into really granular specifications about when it's okay and not okay to spread falsehoods on these platforms. But Twitter has really had a lot of internal struggles over what to do about those posts that you mentioned related to Joe Scarborough. And I think we'll have to closely watch what the company said. They said that those posts didn't violate their current policies, but said that they would be reevaluating those policies moving forward. And so this battle with the president and the pressure that they're facing to do more to police some of those more baseless and outrageous statements could really lead to more changes within the company down the line. Kat Zakreski, author of the Technology 202 newsletter for The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. And so you can imagine that raises the question, well, did these folks have COVID-19 earlier than the first U.S. known cases? And the simple answer is we don't know. It's certainly possible, but the tests alone, while offering us some clues, don't give us a definitive answer. Joining us now is Dan Frosch, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Dan. Happy to be here. I wanted to talk about the state of antibody tests right now. There's a lot of inaccuracies and some of these issues are leaving a lot of people with more questions than answers. Right now, the testing is a little inaccurate at times. I think the WHO even made a recommendation saying we shouldn't use antibody testing results in any plans to reopen economies, things like that. And then there's all these questions. People have been getting sick 
with this late last year. They feel maybe the first case in the United States was January 12th, but people have this lingering feeling that they might have had it even before that. Dan, help us out with antibody testing. Antibody testing is sort of a tantalizing window into whether or not you may have had COVID-19. Unfortunately, as you mentioned, the tests have been plagued by inaccuracy, particularly with regards to sort of false positives. But our story specifically focused on people who had suffered from strange and sudden respiratory illnesses dating back to November and haven't been sick since and are now testing positive for antibodies. And some instances multiple times. And so you can imagine that raises the question, well, did these folks have COVID-19 earlier than the first U.S. known cases? And the simple answer is we don't know. It's certainly possible, but the tests alone, while offering us some clues, don't give us a definitive answer. But because these individuals we focused on sort of have a complete clinical picture, where if they were to have presented to a hospital today with the same symptoms they had back in November or December or January, they would likely be immediately tested for COVID-19, and the physicians attending them would probably believe that they had COVID-19 pending their tests. So it's a uh, perplexing and interesting issue as we sort of explore when this virus first came to the United States, how long it's been here, and as we learn more about it, its rate of transmission. Do we know what might giving some of these false positives in these antibody tests? I read somewhere in the article, I guess, maybe some people might be showing antibodies for other coronaviruses and it might be getting confused or something. Do we know where the breakdown is? Let me also say that it's entirely possible that these are not false positives, right? That these are legit positives that the individuals we focused on were getting. That said, they could have had sort of an asymptomatic infection and since they originally got sick and that's what the test is picking up, or it's possible that the test is picking up antibodies from a different coronavirus, not COVID-19. What is particularly interesting about at least one of the cases that we focused on is you had a federal law enforcement official who got very, very sick in November and didn't know what she had and felt like she almost died and has tested positive for COVID-19 antibodies, I should say, three times earlier this month. Now, does that mean that that illness that she had in November was coronavirus? Not necessarily, but it certainly raises questions about what is causing that positive antibody test and whether indeed she may have had the disease back when she believes she did. And in that case that you're referring to, I think she even wanted to help out others and was even trying right. to donate plasma just to help because that's been another course of treatment that doctors and scientists have been exploring is this covalescent plasma and putting that into other people that are sick. So she was even trying to help out on that front. I think that's part of the problem. People who feel like they had it and are testing positive antibodies, but when they initially got sick, there was no testing done. They want to be able to help. They want to be able to donate their plasma to others in hopes that might be able to help them. And that's been challenging as well, because while there is guidance now that if you simply test positive for antibodies several times, that makes you a candidate for plasma donation, even if you don't have a positive test for coronavirus. But in some of these cases that we focused on in our story, these are individuals who got sick before there was any testing available, right? Because COVID wasn't even on our radar at that point. So without sort of definitive knowledge that they had the virus, they're having issues as to whether they can donate plasma. Dan Frosch, reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating. 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.